Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Charles Fane Lehman, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor of City Journal. I'm Aaron Sabariam, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. And Aaron, how are you doing this week? I'm good. I have been taking the Amtrak just more than usual recently which has been a mixed bag. I was fortunate on this latest trip that there were no delays. You're the seller quarter lead. Which was not, yeah, which was not a sure bet because there were all these, there, the, oh, the, like the, the threatened the, the, strike. You know, as the strike. Yeah, down yeah, down yeah, right. And, you know, I mean, dodged a bullet. It didn't didn't happen, but I, I, was, I enjoyed watching that because I enjoyed following that story because it reminded me that Marty Walsh is still Secretary of Labor. And shortly before he was appointed Secretary of Labor, I watched Frederick Wiseman's documentary, City Hall. <laughs> which is just Frederick Wiseman following Marty Walsh around with a camera for like four hours. I mean, he followed him around for like a hundred hours. It was four hours of final slice, splice together footage. And it's just Marty Walsh being like vaguely confused all the time. And he, he seems like a charming individual. So I'm glad that he successfully navigated the transit strike. Yeah, well, I have to say though, having dealt with other delays on Amtrak and having been faced with the possibility of one more at the hands of a union, it reminded me that for all the both the left wing talk about unions and the kind of right wing, oh, maybe we like unions now kind of rotation, there's actually a lot of problems with unions. Many of them kind of suck. Public sector unions. That that Indeed. that sounds like that 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 sounds like a segue. It does uh, Charles? Why don't you tell our our listeners what we're going to be talking about today? <laughs> this week, we're interested in teachers' unions in particular. They've long been a foe of education reformers, both on the left and right. Yet they wield disproportionate, often decisive power in elections, both local and national. They're recently the renewed subject of collective ire in the wake of COVID-19 school closures, which they perpetuated and extended. But, you know, they're often sort of a, a foe to some, a friend to others. But where do they come from? How do they have such staying power, particularly as union membership nationwide has declined precipitously over the past decades? What does their existence say about how law affects politics and how politics affects law? Why, in other words, are they such durable political players? Our guest is a is a great guy. Let's talk about all this with. But before we get to him, Aaron, do you want to do you want to tell us what you're what you're interested in this week about our topic? Yeah. So you know, I'm not an expert on this, but but one thing that I find fascinating, and it's a theme that we've talked about on the show before, sort of institutional isomorphism, the tendency of different institutions to all resemble each other. What's interesting about teachers unions is that, you know, ostensibly they're they're local, right? You have different unions in different states and, you know, in certain ways they do act independently of each other. But especially in the COVID-19 pandemic and in arguably in some other policy areas, I think including some of the critical race theory and gender ideology in schools, you see that it seems like lots of teachers unions are they're not maybe exactly the same, but they're all kind of lining up behind similar policies. And, you know, I think it 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 may differ by state to an extent, but like just in general, right, unions were a lot more COVID cautious, I would say, than everyone else, teachers unions. And I'm interested in why that is and kind of the causal mechanisms that I think have caused unions to have this kind of isomorphic character. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm 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 also sort of interested in in unions as a as as an institutional creature, what we can learn from their example mm-hmm. about political groups more generally. Something our our guest has written about is really the, the the way that unions emerge and teachers unions in particular emerge and why they've had such durability as I alluded to earlier. And I'm interested in, you know, we we talk a lot on the show about the way in which cultural formations are a product of law, the way in which indirectly the state produces and reproduces institutions that then sort of appear to be non-state actors. And I think unions are probably a good microcosm of that. So I'm interested in those dynamics. Our guest is a great guy to talk about all this with. Before we get to him, let's go briefly to a word from our sponsors. From the grocery store to the gas station, working families are getting hammered by rising prices. But instead of focusing on inflation, Congress is pushing anti-innovation legislation that will impose more financial burdens on working people and seniors. 
their misguided agenda could cost public pension plans $109 billion. Teachers, firefighters, and nurses would pay the heaviest price. Congress needs to focus on inflation and leave American workers alone. And we're back. As I was saying earlier, our guest, our guest, a great guy to talk about all of these topics and more with. He is Michael Hartney, an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Boston College. He's also the author of How Policies Make Interest Groups, Governments, Unions, and American Education. He holds a PhD in political science from Notre Dame. Michael, welcome to Institutionalized. Thanks. It's good to be here with both of you. Yeah. So to, we, we, we let's start with a, with a provocative question. And, you know, we've talked about this. We've brought up this topic a little bit already. We wanted to ask you, to what extent are teachers unions the primary driver of apparent misery during the pandemic? So I think, I mean, this is a, this question. Easy, easy. Very easy yeah, question. Well, it's, it's the topic of my next book. And so the one I'm working on right now, which, you know, every academic will tell you is the more exciting one than the one you're actually, <laughs> your next project. Comes on the show to sell one book, but really he's selling right. that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, my hypothesis here, which is based on some data, I've done some analysis of this, is that I think early on partisanship was actually the bigger factor in deciding how schools reopened in the fall of 2020. So, I mean, everywhere, of course, shut down in, in March of 2020. And I think most people agreed for the most part that made sense being cautious at the outset. We didn't really know what we were dealing with, but then I think it becomes much more contestable and, you know, cards firmly on the table. My own reading of the evidence is that schools should have been open with limited exceptions, perhaps in the fall of 2020. But really, you can kind of draw a straight line between Donald Trump's famous tweets. There were so many of them, but the one that I, it comes to mind here is July 7th, 2020, where he says the schools must reopen. And you can essentially see right after that tweet, my favorite data point is that the New York Times surveyed 132 epidemiologists in, I want to say May, so or May or June, so before this. And universally, other than maybe 10% of them, they all said, I'm sending my kids back. I'd send them back in the summer or I'm sending them back in the fall. There was no sort of litmus test for reopening schools. But as soon as Trump sends this tweet, it becomes, you know, red versus blue, obviously heading into the election. That makes a lot of sense. The problem is that once schools close, and this is a very simple point, but it's one that I don't think people think enough about. And that is once the schools closed, Closures were the status quo policy. So if you were, in this case, a reformer, you needed to navigate this minefield of veto points, like in any sort of policy reform in the American political system, to get schools to reopen. And I think that the if you look at places where school closures prolonged, even past the Biden inauguration, say, that's where I think it's fair to say that teachers unions had a, a really heavy hand in coming up with reason after reason. You know, they would say these are we're giving you good reasons for this. But at some point, I think the way to the evidence turned and their caution was that veto point that why you look at places like Los Angeles and Chicago and a lot of the big urban districts where they are powerful, those places, their reopening was even slower. So I think it's a two-part story. It's partisanship and then union power. And of course, one of the challenges as a researcher is those two things tend to correlate highly. Democratic places tend to have stronger unions. So it's a little hard to tease out exactly how much of the responsibility goes on one party or the other. And, and do you think, I will get to the bigger picture in a minute, but this is fascinating. Do you think that it was the, that there was something about that new status quo that teachers just liked, right? That made it appealing? Or was is there something deeper where just unions, for whatever institutional reason, have a kind of natural tendency towards the status quo, no matter what it is? Yeah. I mean, that is a great question. And I think most of what I, I think I have some pretty good answers, but they're not necessarily going to be deeply data informed because it would require the unions giving us survey data of their members and what they're really thinking. And that's unlikely to happen. But I, I think a few points I would raise. One is um, teachers in this country, you know, the classic question is, are teachers overpaid or underpaid? And I love the old John McCain quote that uh, no teacher should be paid less than a bad senator. So I, I think in some cases, teachers do have a right to be upset about their pay. If you look at pay since the Great Recession, after accounting for inflation, it's been stagnant. On the other hand, it's absolutely true that their benefits, their pensions, their health care costs 
these things, they do get more compensation than your typical private sector worker. But I think the narrative's out there enough. You know, the Time Magazine had that cover a year or two ago where the woman was, I'm a teacher, I make, you know, $35,000 a year and I donate blood in America. So I think they've really, in recent years, been able to, both for legitimate reasons and also, I think, some curated reasons, play the... I don't want to use the word victim here, but kind of the underdog status. Uh I think that when COVID hits and you see a lot of your white collar friends and neighbors who work jobs that transport onto Zoom easily, you kind of say, wait, why are they doing it? But I'm not. And that raises the question, like, are they essential workers or not? And some people would say, hey, they made a critical error here in not embracing the were essential workers like nurses and other people in the healthcare world to further, you know, you say they overplayed their hand by not embracing that. So I think some of it's that it's a little bit of the comparison is the thief of joy that they're, they're looking at other people. They're saying, I'm a white collar professional. Why am I being pushed back so quickly? But I think another piece of it is, and where we really need more research on unions is to understand a classic question with all labor unions. But I think in particular with teachers unions, is a lot of times people will say, well, you have to separate the teachers from the unions. They're not the same thing. Because you can certainly find teachers who said, we want to be back in the classroom. I don't like teaching in hybrid or Zoom format. There were teachers out there who felt that way. But obviously, the union's policy position isn't necessarily reflective of those teachers. So I think it's an open question how much were, you know, like people who believe that unions work well. And actually, people, a lot of people who don't, I mean, my good friend Terry Moe here at Stanford will argue strongly that the reason the unions take the positions they do is because they're simply representing their members and what their members want. A lot of conservatives, though, over the years, I think, have argued that unions have been hijacked by leadership and like a lot of organizations kind of take policy and organizational decision making in a direction that's not necessarily in line with their with their like median constituent or median person they represent. So I think that's a bit of an open question with COVID. One thing I think we can say, there is data to say this, is that unions, just like our democracy, suffer from the fact that a lot of people don't participate. So if you look at when these labor contracts or these MOUs or agreements are reached or even the union meetings, only a small fraction of teachers are showing up and engaging. And so if those teachers who are involved in the unions, oftentimes much more senior, so we might think with COVID, if they're senior teachers, they're very COVID cautious. Perhaps the union, the way it represents is much like a primary in American politics. Uh They're representing a teacher who's not necessarily the average teacher. Possible. So let's, let's actually sort of zoom out a little bit and talk about some of the big pictures. But I, you know, I think I think this ties into what you were just talking about. A common observation on the left is the decline in union membership at sort of the, the heights, the immediate post-war era something like a third of American workers members of labor unions. Today, it's like 10%. That's a pretty dramatic decline. Within that context, teachers unions have maintained their stability and power, even arguably grown in political power. Why do you think that is? What, what explains the remarkable durability of teachers unions? Well, I would say it's because in some ways, public sector unions, of which teacher unions are obviously the largest example in the United States, the National Education Association, I believe, certainly when I was writing my book, this was true. They are the largest union in North America. And I think that part of it's that they're, they might not agree with this, but in some ways, they're almost quasi-governmental entities in and of themselves, is kind of what I argue in the book. And what I mean by that is that there's a requires kind of going to a little bit of labor law. But essentially, one thing that's important to know is that American labor law operates on the principle of exclusive representation, which is different from labor unions in some other parts of the world. I mean, there are a lot of things that are different about labor unions in the United States. For one thing, you kind of mentioned at the outset, they're very decentralized, whereas in other countries, you may have, you know, the representative for teachers has to sit down and negotiate for the entire country with the Minister of Education on some policy issue. Here, it's very decentralized across our 10,000 plus school districts. But because of that, some because of that, and because of the fact that under exclusive representation, and what that means is that when a majority of teachers in a state that has a, a public sector collective bargaining law, when a majority of teachers make it clear that they want to be represented by a union, that all teachers in the district have to be represented by that union, And that after that vote takes place, 
other than in a couple of states that are exceptions like Wisconsin, and there's a reason for that, it's, it's Scott Walker and the big reforms that we all know about back in 2010, that once that union certification vote takes place, the union endures. You can try to decertify it, but it's not like the House of Representatives where every two years we can throw the bums out if we don't like them. In fact, what's kind of fascinating is that most of the teachers unions that exist today were certified and voted into existence by teachers. It could have been 51 or 55% of teachers 30, 40 years ago before any of the teachers who are working in that school district today were even born in some cases. So that's one of the reasons, institutionally speaking, why these organizations persist. And another is that, and, and kind of the theme of my book, is that these unions in the public sector, the reason I call them quasi-governmental entities, is that the government in their public sector labor laws or school districts in their collective bargaining agreements will oftentimes adopt policies that are ostensibly about ensuring that the labor union that represents the workers in the school district have a kind of like a a voice at the table or a seat at the table, you know, you want a reliable labor partner in some sense, if you're the employer, because if, if the union, if the workers are constantly fighting about who should represent us, and there might be five unions at the table, logistically, it gets really messy. But the upshot is that state and local governments created all sorts of, of laws, I call them subsidies in the book, that keep the union in business, keep them powerful. And I think like the best example of this is that the idea of dues checkoff. So school district governments, your local government's payroll office, the one that processes the payroll statements and the benefits for employees, actually in lots of parts of the country collects the union's dues. And in some cases, even their PAC contributions from teachers, and that gets forwarded directly from the government's payroll office to union headquarters and then filtered up to the union that's in Washington, D.C. So that seems like a mess. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit of the history there, because, you know, it is yeah, clearly, clearly you don't get to a situation where the government is overseeing transfers from teachers paychecks to union PACs in one fell swoop. How how do you end up with these? How, how do you what, what is the what is the logic by which or the historical process by which we got to this status quo? That's a yeah. big question, but. Yeah, no, and I think, but I think it's pretty answerable. I, I think that if you look back, Terry Moe's got a great paper on this with Sarah Anzia at UC Berkeley. And they look back at the original votes to authorize mandatory collective bargaining statutes for public employees across the states. And what they found was really interesting. Again, these laws were predominantly in the 70s, but you start to get some of the big states like New York in the 60s. Wisconsin was early in 1959, is the first one. And what they found was that these weren't simple party line votes. So if it's just the story of Democrats are getting behind unions, the classic coalition politics story, we would expect no Republican support. But they didn't see that. And, and that's partly, of course, because the Republican Party maybe was in a slightly different place where it's positioned back then. But I think it was also because this was at a time when you had growing militancy among state and local workers. You had lots of strikes. And you just had pragmatic politicians in both parties saying, okay, what can we do so that our police don't go on strike? What can we do to make sure that we have workers? Okay, and, and we can adopt these, we can have collective bargaining in the public sector. And I think one of the issues here, this is a great example of how sometimes like we make policies thinking about one policy issue as what's at stake and over time it changes. Back then they were thinking about pay and benefits. That's what strikes were over, maybe some working conditions. They weren't thinking about issues like education reform in 1959 or 1965. They weren't thinking about evaluating teachers or tenure policy. They were thinking predominantly about wages and benefits. So you had, I think, a bipartisan movement of state lawmakers say, okay, we want to create stability. How do we do that? And we do that by adopting labor laws that will create a single union, not multiple unions fighting in perpetuity mm -hmm. Unrest will enact laws that literally build sort of this one union that we can negotiate with on these issues. Then, in subsequent decades, especially into the 80s, I think it became very clear that these unions were going to be in the democratic tent. And so, now let me shift gears and give you a, a story that illustrates this. Paul Hubbard, who was the longtime director of the State Education Association or Teachers Union in Alabama. A lot of people don't know this, but Alabama 
was arguably the most powerful teachers union, even without mandatory collective bargaining for decades. And one of the reasons is that Hubbard went to the state legislature in the 1980s and got them to enact a law that said that every single teacher in the state, their dues, the school district had to deduct their dues and PAC contributions and send them right to the union. And they had this system called a reverse checkoff in Alabama. And what that meant was that the default was that every teacher kicked in 12 or 15 bucks to the state union's pack. And if they didn't want to do it, they could ask for it back, but they had to send a letter, you know, one day a year, right? And they could get their money back. And so, but think about that for a minute. It seems like, why am I going into the details on this? I'm going into the details because in that fell swoop, Hubbard said it was the single most important law. Why would some obscure law like that be so important? Because overnight, every Democratic member of that state legislature had, had, had their fundraising was done. It was, it was over. They had raised all the money they needed. So I think over time, the partisan tint became clear on how labor law influences the landscape of political power, both in politics and in education. Right. It's, it's sort of ironic because it seems like the, the, the rationale for this is basically efficiency, right? It's just more efficient to negotiate with one entity. But as we see in antitrust and other contexts, often there's a trade-off, right? Where what's most, you know, concentration is efficient, but concentration also poses certain risks, right? And so if in the name of creating a single kind of point of negotiation, you end up with this massive, like, political entity, suddenly, you know, what seemed like a good idea from the standpoint of efficiency might not seem like such a good idea from, say, the standpoint of, like, democratic accountability. Right. And in some ways, this all came to fruition in the recent Janus Supreme Court decision. Of course, this is the decision in 2018 when the court held that because teachers are public employees, that the fact that labor law required dissenting non-members as teachers who didn't want to be a member of the union to nonetheless financially support the union because of the efficiency argument of collective bargaining here, that 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 was a violation of their First Amendment rights, with the logic being that the union takes, in collective bargaining, takes all sorts of positions on public policy matters, so that by forcing teachers who don't want to be in the union to give money, they're literally forcing some people to subsidize one advocacy, one viewpoint in advocate advocacy debates over things that are public matters. And I bring that up because in that decision, actually in the precursor to that decision, the case Friedrichs versus California that happened just a few years earlier, that's when the court deadlocked because of Scalia's passing. What's interesting is Justice Sotomayor tried to save uh, agency fees and save the union's ability to collect this money by appealing to the logic. And I want to give you the quote here. It's great. She draws on a, a 19, an early 1980s Supreme Court decision, one of the early ones certifying that this new bargaining regime that I've been talking about when it came into existence, it was challenged. And the, and the quote goes like this, when recognized as the exclusive bargaining representative, a union assumes an official position in the operational structure of a school. That's the quote in the precedent. But Sotomayor then wants to interpret that as the following. She says, this means that the state is creating itself a union. So, and all and if you were there at oral arguments, everyone was aghast because in parlance, what we would call this traditionally is a company union. And the unions didn't want at all to be seen as a company union. They said, we have nothing to do with the state. We're fighting the man. But it revealed in a single sentence, what that revealed was just how intertwined the state had become with public sector unions. Yeah, so I, I, I sort of want to, I, I want to ask more generally about the sort of concept of public sector unions because I think that they're a they're fairly controversial institution. You know, I've, I've, I've been known to make the argument that the right goes a little too hard on them. This is mostly because I talked to a lot of cops and they like the police unions, and a lot of people on the right who hate police unions disagree with me substantively on lots of other issues. So I'm skeptical of them. That's not a good argument per se, but this is where I come from. So, 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 talk about the pros and cons of public sector unions. Shouldn't I might say skeptically, teachers have the same right to collectively bargain as private employees if they want to? Yeah, I mean, I think it matters what you're talking about collective collectively bargaining over. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Scott Walker was basically called everything but the devil himself. He was probably called that too. And can, uh, can you j- just just for our, our listeners, can you give a little context on Scott Walker's reforms? 
Yeah. So that, yeah, that's what I was going to say. You know, he's considered the big villain of public sector unions. And here's what he did. And much like Chris Christie in some ways was remember the politics then we're in the heart of the great recession. So they're coming in in a time when state and local government budgets are in the red. Part of the reason that they're in the red is because of pension obligations. And part of that is due to a lot of the benefits that not even teachers or current public employees are promised. But a lot of the post-retirement benefits in terms of like if a teacher retires before they're eligible to go on Medicare, in some states with strong unions, the union has negotiated with the state to pay for their health care. I mean, and healthcare is one of the most expensive things. You know, look at the inflation chart. So Walker decides, okay, what can I do to bring a little bit of balance here? And what he his reforms did was it essentially capped the amount that unions could negotiate for wage increases to kind of the CPI. So you could get, so he basically wanted to say no more. The, 50- the, the consumer price index. Yeah, yeah. So he, he, right. So he, he says like, we need to get this down so that you're not getting 15% or 20% pay increases. And in addition, remember, we had this huge, robust education reform movement at that time that was trying to move away from a system where every teacher was evaluated as doing a fantastic job and try to differentiate that so we can reward high performers and counsel low performers to leave the classroom. The unions obviously were against that. So another thing that Walker's reforms and other reformers at the time did was they said that labor law, it's fine if you want to say that unions should be able to collectively bargain over pay and benefits, but A, like we're going to cap how much you can do, and B, unions shouldn't be bargaining over things like how their principal is going to be able to evaluate them or whether test scores can be used to evaluate them. Those are matters of public policy concern that school boards and democratically elected officials should get to decide based on what they think their constituents, the voters want, not based upon what one special interest group that we're giving a seat at the table gets to decide in private negotiations. So so one thing I want to sort of hone in on here is you say that teachers unions and the state are very much intertwined. And you say that for various partly sort of contingent reasons, teachers unions really have become just dominated by Democrats, right? They, they really are in, they're only supporting Democrats. Doesn't that kind of suggest that teachers unions are, in some sense, like case in point for the deep state thesis? Right. Like they're almost like part of the deep state where they're, you know, they're officially nonpartisan. But of course, we all know that's a lie. And they really are entwined with the state, but they're like unelected bureaucrats and they are effectively making education policy. I mean, it almost seems like this this is just sort of an extension of Trump's kind of analysis of the administrative state. But, you know, with a slightly different institutional mechanism and applied to education. Well, I would say what the the term that I feel most comfortable with is the one that, that Terry Moe uses, again, political scientist at Stanford who studied the unions for a long time. He calls them a, a classic example of a vested interest. And mm-hmm. this isn't just true of teachers unions per se. I think we could broaden this discussion a bit to the educate, what I'll call the educational mm-hmm. establishment more generally, or what a lot of critics call the blob. So here we mean mm-hmm. the traditional actors, the schools of education that have big incentives for school districts to offer teachers more pay for a meaningless master's degree, because guess who gets to enroll in that master's degree program? It's the colleges of education. I'm thinking of the state school boards associations who like Max Eden at AEI had done some great work on this recently when the school boards association stepped in it with the Merrick Garland memo about kind of monitoring parents uh-huh. seeing school board means one of the things that people woke up and didn't realize was wait who pays for the school state school boards association oh they get dues where do those dues come from oh they're paid by local school boards does it come out of the actual school board members pocket no it comes out of the budget of the school district so in other words again an interest group that's created and and so like maybe deep states too nefarious maybe. sure sure but but what's certainly true is what happens is kind of a two-stage process. You have a policy that's enacted. We're gonna have we're gonna the government's gonna be involved in education, and they're gonna have to hire teachers and administrators, and they're gonna have to have certification processes to make sure teacher all of those things happen. Yeah. And then they're gonna need some institutional apparatus to pull that off. And those institutions and the actors within them then have strong incentives to continue to get resources and it feeds on itself. It's much like an iron triangle. Is probably- and, and, and- does that is that maybe part of the explanation too for why they're so left wing, right? Because this whole thing depends on the government. It all works through government. So just at a very macro level, like 
if, if this is how you're going to kind of create your interest groups and, and get money, it sort of makes sense to vote for the people who like the government taxing people and spending things. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying. I just, but like, I, this is sort of a, a kind of structural maybe reason, or do you think that's not really why they're so left? Well, I think the counter example that you'd have to wrestle with there is the police unions and the firefighters. Sure. Much more friendly towards Scott Walker and which, to be fair, Walker gave a little carve out to. I mean, that's politics 101. He, right. He took of care course. of his friends. And, but I think there's something to it on, and this is worth mentioning on, remember we talked about there's the unions and then their constituents. It's certainly true that unions, teachers unions aren't endorsing Republicans for the most part. That's pretty rare. They love Charlie Crist, but what is he these days, right? Yeah. So, they, but I like, for example, I did this really interesting survey experiment in my book where I presented teachers, I had a sample of about 5,000 teachers in Wisconsin. In fact, it was during the recall that I surveyed them. So they were really angst on these issues to begin. And I gave them two hypothetical candidates for state legislature. And it turns out that Democratic teachers in Wisconsin would vote for a pro-life Republican if he promised to not touch their tenure and not have performance pay, like the issues on their issue. So I think the actual constituents, when it comes to like state and local issues, will vote for the candidate that's kind of like looking after their occupational interests. And they're not really caring about like culture war issues or like national political issues in those examples. And I think that's a problem too, because it creates an ecosystem politically that makes it very hard for reformers to break through. And that's because Republicans, suburban Republicans have no reason really to care about education reform because their constituents are pretty happy with their suburban schools, maybe up until 18 months ago. And then Democrats and like a lot of non-white voters, particularly African-American voters, aren't going to be voting for Republicans either. So you end up with this situation where suburban Republicans oftentimes in state legislatures will vote in ways that they're not going to sort of be attacking teacher tenure constantly. You know, Scott mm -hmm. Walker and Chris Christie, I think, are outliers somewhat. They had presidential ambitions. They were trying to kind of like plant their flag as as their signature issue. But your your modal state legislator who's Republican, mm -hmm. I don't think they get up in the morning thinking about urban school reform. So let me let me just pivot just a little bit to some of your related research, because I want to, in, in the time we've left, I want to ask about your work on the influence of teachers unions and local elections. So it's not just the sort of creatures of the state, they also influence the state. Can you talk about your findings on how teachers unions impact particularly school board elections? What do you found there? Yeah. So let me preface this by saying I'm someone who, you know, would wake up very happy if we abolished all school boards and just had like mayoral appointed or, you know, kind of what Washington, D.C. did with a mayor run system that just appoints a superintendent. Because I think I think the it's very, so long as we have such low turnout in these elections, they're very prone to capture and they just don't do a good job either in terms of democracy or accountability to voters and especially to the people who use the schools. But with that caveat, I would say this, which is the main theme that runs through my research on the role of teachers unions in school board elections is that the unions take advantage of that very anemic democracy that we have in these local elections. So I'll, I have a report coming out with the Manhattan Institute in the next few weeks that looks at about 5,000 endorsements in local school board elections in New York, California, and Florida dating back to the 90s. And on average, whenever the teachers unions make an endorsement in a competitive school board race, their candidate wins 70% of the time. And that's like a really good batting average. But part of the reason my research shows that they're able to do that is because so many of these elections are held at odd times of the year when few people turn out. And so they still do really well when elections are held so-called on cycle. That is when your school board election is on the ballot at the same time that your presidential election or your congressional election is. But they win, they win significantly less. So those win rates of maybe a 76% in the odd years drops to 68 or 67% in the on-cycle years. Another sort of reform, I, the one that I'm most excited about, one of the things that the report tackles, and maybe I shouldn't give it all away, but the uh, looks at what happened in Florida. A lot of people are familiar that Ron DeSantis came out in the school board elections in Florida a couple of weeks ago and endorsed 30 candidates. 25 of his candidates either won outright or advanced to the, essentially the runoff in November. But what's really remarkable is I looked at my union endorsement database and I found that when DeSantis and the unions went head to head, which happened just under 20 times, the unions won three races. So in one fell swoop, having kind of like this rock star governor, and I mean rock star here, not in the terms that he's my 
he's my choice in the primary necessarily, but somebody who people know where he stands. He put out a 10 point agenda item mm. on these are my issues. If you want my endorsement, support these things. He gave, he made it easy for voters because the other point that, that people often bring up is that these elections are nonpartisan. So when the voter goes into the ballot box in California, all they see on the label is whether it's the incumbent and what their occupation is. And there's a halo effect for being a teacher. So in California, in my research, I find about 25 to 30% of school board members are current or former teachers or union members in the neighboring district. But for the voter that just wants to pick somebody who's gonna do good things for kids, like, oh, this candidate's a teacher. DeSantis changed that equation and helped voters for the first time in Florida say, okay, here's a DeSantis candidate and here's a union-backed candidate. And when voters had that choice in Florida, they went with the DeSantis candidates. I think, I think you know, that, that, that segue was naturally sort of a, a, a bigger picture. I don't know, I like, to, I like to sort of turn these interviews towards the end, focusing on, on what can be done. So how do, you, how do you think about responding more effectively to teaching unions? They seem like an entrenched feature of American politics, whether you're an ed reformer or somebody thinks they were particularly bad on issues relating to critical race theory. How do you think about responding politically to teachers' unions? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the DeSantis, look, I don't think every governor can pull that off. They don't have the cachet. But I do think it's sort of like, what's the old Woody Allen adage, like that 90% of life is showing up or something like that. It's like, at least show up as governors and help the voters in your state make sense of why these elections matter. And, you know, I think now is the time to sell that message because we've just come out of a pandemic where, you know, a lot of parents judge schools. I think Rick Hess made this point really well. And that is that before the pandemic, a lot of parents would say, is my kid making friends? Does the teacher seem nice at parent-teacher night? The, he calls those the custodial role that schools play. And, and if that was okay, the bus was showing up to pick up my kid, things were fine. The pandemic kind of like lifted the curtain there. Parents got to sort of like look in on Zoom and say, wait, that's the content we're covering. Either I find something offensive, what does this have to do with education? Or like, this is really dumbed down, like my kid's not learning anything. So I think now is the moment to capitalize on that. And I think it's up to both party leaders candidates for higher level office to coordinate um, and to do what DeSantis did, which is make it easy for your voters. Say like, these are five issues that matter. Ask your school board candidates where they stand on these things, because there's very little coverage among journalists on these things. Unfortunately, a lot of the coverage ends up being the district where you get salacious things happening, you know, stuff that makes good media coverage rather than just the the sort of more important debates, which is we're eliminating our honors program because we think that's not aligned with equity or something like that. And it doesn't get reported. And so parents and voters don't know about that. I think that's the most critical issue for people who want common sense education policy is what's the th what threatens them from not getting it is a lack of visibility is really what it boils down to. So I think that's one thing. And yeah, I mean, so some of these reforms are simple. We should switch school board elections to be on cycle. We should think about partisan elections, perhaps. And I also think, here's a here's sort of maybe a counterintuitive one. Conservatives have oftentimes been very fond or historically of local control. I'm not as excited about local control in education as I as maybe I used to be for the reason that if you don't really have strong democratic institutions, if these school board elections have 10% turnout, if the people negotiating with teachers unions on the other side of the table are amateur politicians, you know, it's maybe not as good a situation as if you look at, I don't think it's an accident that if you look around the world and you look at what school systems reopen more quickly in other OECD countries, it is oftentimes pretty centralized school systems where like, the analog would be Randy Weingarten has to go to the White House and negotiate with Miguel Cardona, and it's going to get covered on every evening news station. And that creates a lot of external political pressure to make kind of adult-like decisions rather than what you had, which was Randy Weingarten could go along and say, I've been trying to open schools for a year, and all of the local union right. that, that sort of report to her are doing the exact opposite, but nobody knows that. Right. I, I mean, you know, this this... I want to connect this to another theme, which is school choice. I mean, you're so look, I, I think in there are plenty of good arguments for school choice. And, you know, especially if a kid is trapped in like a failing school and is dealing with these unions, it's like, you know, it, 
there's a, there's a strong moral case, you know, you should let them like go to a different school. But given what you're saying though, it, does that kind of present a, not maybe a strong objection to school choice, but like a, a kind of important caveat to it, because the whole point of school choice is to sort of use the market to like break up what the school choice proponents see as a kind of centralized, like government run system that they don't like, but you know, that might, that couldn't that just fuel these problems, right? Because the, like, the reality is a lot of kids still are going to be in public schools. So like, you know, do we really want to be implementing measures that focus on decentralization when really what we need is kind of a central point of not just control, but also responsibility that kind of, you know, puts the heat on someone like Randy Reingarten, right? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. This is sort of like back to like one of Rick Hess's early books, Revolution at the Margins, kind of made the point that, you know, I think school choice has done a lot of good things for individual kids and families and given them options that they otherwise wouldn't have had. So it's a success story in terms of the individual and social mobility for those people. So that's good. But I think it's been less successful in, disru- in being disruptive to the to the traditional public school system for lots of reasons, but some of them include the fact that there just aren't enough high-quality schools for families to choose from. So, you know, choice advocates, and they're all my friends. I'm not really on Twitter, but I read. And, and they all get excited, you know, every time school choice legislation passes. You know, you how many times have we heard it's the year of school choice? But school choice is a two-step process. You create the choices. You let people You let people have a choice. But then if there's nothing good to choose from, or there's a limit of the yeah. number of choices to choose from, how threatened are other schools going to be in terms of doing something? And then you raise a second point here, which is important, which is kind of back to the classic, was it the Hirschman stuff, voice, exit, and loyalty, that sometimes what you see happen in an institution or an organization when you create an exit option is the people who would agitate the most for the previous organization to get it together are going to leave. And I think we've seen some of that in code. And one of the things I'm starting to look at is if you look at the wealth of the attendance zones in a school district, I've looked at this like in Newton Public Schools in Massachusetts, it was the places where the families are the wealthiest that have lost the most enrollment during the Uh pandemic which suggests that like, and those are the families probably that were going to the school or meetings or heckling the superintendent to get schools open. Those people leave. It just gives bureaucrats more of an incentive to be like, yeah, nobody's closing us down. We're not going out of business. Yeah. I mean, that actually ties into another point I want to pose to you, which is, so I am very much on board with the teachers unions suck kind of angle. Like I really do think it's what they did during the pandemic was, was awful. But, you know, there's sort of a politically incorrect thing that a lot of people on the right dance around, which is that a lot, they, they always say, oh, well, these were so horrible. The school closure is so bad because it hurt, you know, minority kids the most and exacerbated the achievement gap. I agree. It was really bad. What's left out is that it was actually a lot of minority parents and lower income parents who at least some polls suggest were more okay with school closures, right, than rich parents and the the really like the people who were really angry about this and fueled the activism, I think were not like the least privileged people, or at least there is some polling data to suggest this. So you know, what do you what do you make of that? Like it seems like another problem here might be that just there's actually a lot of people who maybe are hurt by teachers unions, but who for various reasons just either don't realize that they're being hurt or just like don't care that much. I mean, what do you make of that? Okay, at at a very broad level, I have been surprised at what I call, I would characterize as a lack of general outrage about how schools have handled the pandemic. Like, I think there's like a a really angry 30%. Yeah. And they're big enough to create parents groups and, and, you know, to get the attorney general paying attention. Like they're big enough to be a thorn in the side of the system. But what surprised me is the durability, but this is very common. There's always... I think part of it relates to what's the alternative you say when you're asked a question like, do you think your kid goes to a good school? If you're a parent and you say, no, my kid goes to a horrible school, but I can't do anything about it. That's a really awful way to have to orient yourself every morning. I think there's an internal, it's, it's much like what's the old Fenno's paradox. People hate Congress, but they love their member of Congress. I think those numbers, when you see people say, I like my local schools, but America's schools are failing. I think where a lot of it comes from is 
A, it's hard to say the teacher you know who's doing their best is like, they stink. That's not pleasant. And B, to be like, my kid's falling behind. Nobody wants to think that. Or my kid's not getting what they could to be as successful as they could. I do really, it's important to me, and I hope I can do this quickly, to, to push back a bit on what is conventional wisdom, something that you said. And I'm not claiming that I have evidence that's a slam dunk to the contrary, but Vlad Kogan, political scientist at Ohio State, has put together a very compelling analysis, in my view, that he uses panel data, meaning he's able to follow the same people over time during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And he finds that for African-Americans and Latino families, that the if you follow them over time, they, they begin to say in the surveys, I want in-person education or I'm comfortable with in-person education as soon as their local school district invites kids back and brings them in person. And Kogan's conclusion is you can believe one of two things. Either our urban school systems are just really responsive to families of color. There are a lot of reasons to think that's probably not true. Or families of color were disproportionately likely to, when they hear the superintendent or their local teacher or their teacher's union leader say it's not safe. I mean, a lot of unions in these big cities where these families were lived disproportionately were rolling up with, with body bags and, and doing events that were saying your kids are going to die. So I think a lot of it is it can be mm-hmm. as the messaging. So I think that's important. Sure. You don't know for yeah. you. Um, I, think, I think your point more generally, but yeah, I think I think it, it may be a little more complicated. I think we may, we may want to move to closing thoughts. Aaron, where are you at after the conversation? I mean, I guess... All my my base all my basic priors are intact. Teachers unions are bad. <laughs> I think I think no no no. Yes. But I think the centralization point is is very interesting. And this is also a a you see this in a lot of other contexts, right? In oh, here's one example. Both the U.S. and the U.K. did a very good job of procuring vaccines early on. And one reason was that they had a single person or like a small team of people whose job it was to just negotiate basically on behalf of the entire country with pharmaceutical companies for, you know, how many doses they're going to get. And that single person could make risky bets very quickly. They didn't have to go through a lot of bureaucracy. They could say things that maybe would have been, you know, a little politically unpopular, like we're going to totally indemnify the vaccine makers from potential side effects of the vaccine, which now some anti-vaxxers have seized on. But like, that was a good idea if your goal was to just get lots of these things, right? Secure pre-commitments from the pharmaceutical companies. As a result, the UK, and I think, I mean, the US and in particular, the UK got really favorable deals. And, you know, it was good. They like worked it out with companies and they ended up vaccinating their populations pretty quickly. The EU had a very different system where there was no single centralized like decision maker who both had authority and also kind of responsibility and accountability. And that absence, the lack of a centralized sort of locus of accountability in the EU seems to have really slowed down the procurement process, made it more bureaucratic. And probably, you know, in the long run, it didn't make a huge difference. But in the short run, right, there were like a there were a couple months where the EU was way behind on vaccines because they just didn't have enough of them. And, you know, probably quite a few people who died as a result of that delay. So I just think that's an intri- it's another example of something I think a lot of conservatives, as, as you say, Michael, don't, don't always appreciate, which is that there actually are virtues to centralization and centralization can in fact make something almost if not more directly democratic, then certainly more accountable to the demos in practice. And I think that's an interesting lesson and one that I wish more conservative, especially school choice advocates would take to heart. Charles, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about Michael's comments sort of towards the end about rebalancing or exposed teaching to greater accountability versus centralization. And this is always sort of the, you know, the, the, the principle versus prudence problem, right, is, is, you know, A, is more versus less democratic accountability going to achieve my desired ends in any given circumstance? And then B, is there some sort of moral mandate that more democracy is better? And I tend to think that like, kind of paribus, more democracy is better. 
morally speaking, but you know, I'm 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 left thinking about sort of to what extent the solution here really is just less democratic accountability or less less democratic involvement in the process. Michael was saying you might prefer appointed school boards. I you know I I think Suzanne Mettler, the political scientist, in this book, the submerged state, and the the book is really about basically how people the the structure of welfare transfers means that people don't understand what they're getting for their tax dollars in a very sort of succinct summary. But I think, you know, part of the argument that Michael's laid out about teachers unions is that that they have worked to submerge themselves in a different way, which is to say that their relationship to government and their interdependence on the state is is sort of uh, and 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 their role in the political process is largely not visible to the public. And there are two ways you can, you know, I think Michael's argued that one way to resolve that problem is to increase their visibility. And I think that's true. The question is how tractable is that versus just decreasing the amount of input they can plausibly have. Maybe we are better off with, with appointed school boards. I don't have to think of the pros and cons of that. But my intuition is that's not, you know, obviously crazy because like who runs through school boards? And the answer is whoever the teachers decide should run the school boards. That seems like an obvious problem. I'd rather give reformist mayor more power than less. But I have to think about the balance of the of the cost benefits. Anyway, I think I think at that point we should uh, we should give uh, some recommendations to our listeners. Aaron, do you want do you want to refresh your video first? You can go. Yeah. Okay. So I'm actually going to plug something else that Michael wrote, which is a, a report he wrote for us at the Manhattan Institute late last or it's late last year, almost a year ago now, about on cycling local elections. Michael alluded to this a little bit in his in his remarks. But but it's a it's a really thoughtful report about he looks specifically at research on teachers unions, but I've applied this to prosecute prosecutors elections, talking about the way in which account democratic accountability is hampered by holding elections in off years. I think it's sort of very smart. So somebody once referred to this as one weird trick to help hold progressive prosecutors accountable. I think it's not quite that, only in certain states. But it is a, it's 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 an interesting it's 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 an interesting angle on how sort of just procedural irregularities or peculiarities can have dramatic impact on results. Aaron, do you have a, a plug for our listeners? Yeah, it's a little less intellectual, but the movie The Irishman, if anyone hasn't seen it, it it deals with Jimmy Hoffa and his kind of, who's this famous slaver leader, obviously, and his kind of shady dealings with the mob. So, you know, on the subject of political corruption and union corruption and unions having some some downsides, I think that is a a good movie to watch. Michael, you have any recommendations? Yeah, I think that the person probably doing the the best work right now in education politics is probably Vlad Kogan at Ohio State University. So I would, he has a recent, he has a couple of pieces, but I think a recent piece in Education Next, which is titled appropriately for our conversation today. Well, actually, it's not even asking the question. He's not posing the question. He's stating locally elected school boards are failing. Pandemic stress test school governance revealing many flaws. So I would recommend that piece to listeners. Great. I think God, he follows me on Twitter, so that's a good sign. <laughs> well, thank you, Michael, so much for joining us on Institutionalized. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I'd love to be back sometime. Yeah. And thank you, as always, to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, union ballot checks you'd like to send our way, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Siberium. I think that's about all the time we have for this episode. So until next time, I'm Charles Van Lehman. I'm Aaron Sparium. And you've been listening to Institutionalized. We hope that you'll join us again soon. <laughs>